Hi, I'm Pete Sampson. Welcome to the first episode of The Shamrock. I'm joined by Matt Fortuna, national college football reporter for The Athletic. Just some backstory on our new podcast. You probably noticed a lot of podcasts going out in the athletic space. This is our Notre Dame edition. Between the two of us, 24 years experience on Notre Dame beat. This is my 18th year, uh, so I'll be covering Notre Dame from South Bend. Matt's in Chicago. Uh, just some quick math. Over the last 18 years, I told up 222 Notre Dame games that I've covered, and I've missed three. Uh, Matt, I don't think your record is is quite that uh, sterling, which is maybe more of a compliment to you. Uh, but uh, welcome to the show. Thanks for doing this. Absolutely. Happy to be here, Pete. This will be my 11th season covering college football, six of which were spent following the Irish as a beat writer for ESPN.com. I know you had mentioned off-air uh, you missed the BC home game in 2011. I believe that's the only home game you missed. Uh, story for another true. time, but I had to go to the hospital after that game. So we'll just pretend that day never happened and we'll just keep your streak going for argument's sake. But more importantly, I have a lot of in-laws who went to Notre Dame that are probably listening right now. And uh, if I screw anything up, they will absolutely let me hear about it. So I will try to be <laughs> on all my P's and Q's here. Yeah, I think we're, we're in the same boat. My wife is a Notre Dame law grad. She works in an office with her both Notre Dame lawyers. So uh, I hear a lot about that. So I guess in terms of like why this podcast exists, we should probably cover that before we get to the show because there are a million podcasts out there. As I noted earlier, The Athletic is sort of pushing into the audio space uh, with podcasts. Notre Dame is the most followed college football team in the athletic college football space. Got to do one. But how do we stand out from other podcasts that you're probably listening to on Notre Dame? I think, look. I don't think this podcast is going to spend a whole lot of time debating the merits of moving a backup safety to backup linebacker. I don't think that's what's most interesting about Notre Dame. Um, Notre Dame is a school that everything is sort of life and death all the time. Um, also, I think if I had a spirit animal who was, that was a podcast, it would be a little bit more men and blazers. We actually thought about calling this uh, Domes on Domers, as Fortuna and I both have sort of fully embraced the bald for the last few years. <laughs> So I, I think that's sort of the uh, the vibe that we want to give off, that this is a more upbeat, uh, lighthearted Notre Dame podcast, opposed to everything being so damn heavy. Um, Matt, I know that you can, having been here for six years, you can sort of appreciate um, you know that vibe around Notre Dame. Sometimes this place can take a little itself a little bit too seriously, so hopefully this podcast will not. I couldn't agree more. We're not going to worry about who jumped out at every single practice. And like you said, all the, the backups and the backups on the depth chart. But everything is a referendum on everything at Notre Dame. Uh, every loss is a reason they should join a conference or go secular or do something drastic to change uh, the momentum. And uh, we promise to keep everything in perspective here. Yeah, well, we're going to get into the show. We've got a, couple, a few things to chat about. I want to talk about a, a story on Ian Book that I wrote uh, about a couple weeks ago, sort of about can he take the next step to be a little bit more like a Jake Fromm, um, you know, sort of be maybe in the sentence after the sentence about Tua and Trevor Lawrence. Uh, and then Matt, we'll, we'll sort of get into you. Have, you've got some really good insight into Louisville. You spent some time around them. Um, but before that, just so you know, you can subscribe to The Athletic by going to theathletic.com backslash the shamrock. We'll have another episode coming up Thursday. So this is going to be a, a twice weekly show. Once the season gets rolling and the games are on Saturdays, we'll be recording sort of in the, the Sunday, Monday space uh, to recap what happened. And then the Thursday space to preview what's coming next. Um, and you can get all your uh, 
Athletic Podcast, iTunes, Spotify, um, or you can listen straight from the Athletic app as well as listening to sort of uh, our Ohio State and our Clemson podcast this morning. So there is a lot of really good stuff out there uh, in the college football world from the Athletic in your earbuds. So let's get into sort of the stories that I, I think we find most interesting. It's, again, not the nitty gritty of Notre Dame, Louisville and matchups and strengths and weaknesses, because I, I think so much of the season to me is going to come down to Ian Book and whether he can stop being good and start being great. And that's not to take away from his season last year, because it was it was a real revelation. I think there. <laughs> Chip Long would probably tell you it was a bit of a job saver for him um, when they pulled the plug on Brandon Wimbush and moved to book, not really knowing what it was going to be. And, you know, I mean, Matt, you've, you know, from more of a national perspective, you've seen these quarterback changes. Sometimes they work, sometimes they don't. Um, what what did you sort of make of, of Ian Book's season last year as he sort of took over for Wimbush and built on that Citrus Bowl play to Miles Boykin, which sort of carried the entire offseason last year? Yeah, I'll take that a step further. I think Chip Long has said it, it was pretty yeah. much close to a job saver. I mean, I saw him coming out of the locker room on the field at Wake Forest, and he gave me that look of relief like, Maddie, this this thing could have gone one or two ways today, and I'm just thankful it went the right way. But clearly they had to do something to inject some new life into that offense. And when you look at it from Ian Book's perspective, I mean, it's night and day from this point last year to, to right now. I mean, this point last year, his job was to try to unseat Brandon Wimbush, for lack of a better term. And by most accounts, I mean, he was outplaying him. But, but Brandon Wimbush, let's face it, was, was a more highly recruited guy, was a guy the program had a lot more invested in. It, it, it probably had more upside or potential or whatever your adjective of choice is uh, to, to describe his level of play. And to his credit, he beat Michigan. They went 3-0. and And to the coaching staff's credit, uh, they made a switch before they, they had to, before they were dealt a loss that – likely would have done them in from a college football playoff perspective. So uh, when Ian Buck stepped in there last year, I just thought everyone, 1 through 11 on that offense, played quicker, played sharper, played looser. It, it, it just looked like a, a very high-functioning unit. And now I think you're going from a guy who is starting for the first time and just trying to run the offense better than uh, the guy starting in front of him did to a guy who, like you said, is trying to be a damn game-changer. I mean, trying to be – a reason Notre Dame wins games and a guy that defensive coordinators around the country are going to have to prepare for week in and week out and not someone who's just going to distribute the ball, blend in the background and try not to screw this thing up for lack of a better term. Yeah. Cause I don't think that he has the weapons that he had last year to sort of be a distributor. You know, it's like, no, there, there are no great pass first point guards on teams with where guys can't shoot. Right. Uh, and I think, you know, Notre Dame has Chase Claypool and Chris Fink, but beyond that Cole Komet is hurt. There's a lot of questions about the weapons that are going to be available to him. Uh, and watching practice, we've had a lot more practice access than we've ever had. So you can sort of give a, I think, more of an in-depth evaluation about, okay, what are you actually seeing here? And for the first couple of weeks of practice, I saw the same Ian book that I saw last year. It, it wasn't a guy that had taken a big step forward. And after spending about an hour with him in July... Uh, for a couple stories that I was working on, including sort of this big developmental story that he's going through, I was, I don't want to say, I don't want to say I was disappointed, but I was like, this is it. Like, this is, this is the guy that's going to sort of take Notre Dame to the next level. And apparently behind the scenes, Chip Long felt the same way that, wait a minute, this is, this is not what we need. And he's had gone to book, he'd gone to quarterback coach Tom Reese and said, look, 
this this is not what I signed up for. This is we're we're playing a nine and three offense right now. If we're going to be ten and two, eleven and one, challenging for the playoff, I need that I need that game changer. And for that last week of practice, we were out there on um, you know quote unquote media day last Wednesday, and then we got an hour of availability on Friday. And book was absolutely dealing, and apparently the coaching staff felt the same way. That that was my evaluation, but it was also Chip Long's evaluation that this is the kind of quarterback we need who's makes not almost all the throws that are there to be made, makes all the throws. Uh, I believe on Wednesday he completed about ninety four percent of his passes. So, uh, and some of them were deep shots as well. So that's. I'm just so fascinated to see, like, okay, is this can this be applied on a Saturday? Because if it if it can, I think that's that really moves the needle for Notre Dame. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I was at that that media day practice as well, and it's the only one I was at this preseason. But he looked really, really sharp. He looked like a much better football player uh, than we last saw him on the field in, in game action last season. And uh, I, I think that will be ultimately the difference for Notre Dame between. Uh, like you said, nine and three and, and maybe 11 and one. And I know we're, we're getting ahead of ourselves here and, and trying to predict the future. But uh, I think a lot of it relies on this guy's shoulders. He's a guy who has the potential to be the best quarterback of the Brian Kelly era, especially if he ends up staying uh, for his fifth year next season, not to look too far down the road. But uh, it, he's also a guy, and you had a tremendous story on him around playoff time last year. Uh, describing his background, he just seems so damn coachable. You know, he's, his father, I think, yeah. was a SWAT team member. I mean, nothing's going to rattle this guy. And I think if nothing else, that has to help you sleep better at night if you're Notre Dame, knowing that this guy is going to take orders, he's going to do what we ask of him, and none of this is going to be too much for him to handle because, uh, let's face it, you know, a few years ago, he was standing looking ready to commit to Mike Leach with his only Power 5 offer at Washington State, and now all of a sudden he's the starting quarterback of Notre Dame's first playoff team. I'm bummed that he didn't only because then Jason Jenks' story would have included uh, <laughs> quotes from me in book. But yeah, I mean, mom, paramedic nurse, uh, his brother works in a jail as a corrections officer. So yeah, being quarterback at Notre Dame, actually not that not that stressful <laughs> no. in the book household. But like to, to look far ahead, I mean, this this is a good segue into the story, a story you wrote recently, sort of about the, the playoff or bust mentality. Everyone sort of has it. It's easy to say, but then when you live it, it's much harder because you're living it with Clemson and Alabama. And you had, you know, I was sort of reading it through it, thinking, all right, where's the Notre Dame part? Because, like, what school is espouses playoff or bust right. more than Notre Dame, but really has a hard time living it? What I, I was curious, like, what sort of prompted you to, to get into that story? Um, and was there anything as you wrote it, you're like, huh, I didn't really think about it in those terms? I would say just, you know, being a college football fan, first and foremost, and having a lot of friends who are fans who are not in the media, it, it, you know, we, we are always looked at as these kind of Vegas experts amongst our fan, our, our friends, right? I mean, oh, you know, yeah. Pete says Notre Dame's going to do this this year. Matt says this. And more than ever before this year, I, I, I've gotten a certain level of, I wouldn't say apathy, but, but kind of a fatalistic nature from, from fans who were kind of like, look, is this just like the NBA where it's going to be LeBron and the Warriors every year? Like, does anyone really have a chance other than Clemson or Alabama this year? And, I mean, looking through the numbers and talking to people, I mean, I, I think it would be pretty close to the height of stupidity to put money on any any team other than those two to win it all this year just by the sheer nature of what they've done, what those coaching staffs have done, and everything they have coming back on both sides of the ball. But, I, I mean, Notre Dame, I think, is a great test case for this, right? I think they are – 
they have every right right now to say they are the best of the rest. And I know that sounds like faint praise, but like they're in that next tier of programs with Ohio State, with Georgia, with Oklahoma that are perennial 10-win playoff contenders. Uh, and in the BCS era, maybe that was good enough to help you possibly win it all one year because you only had to beat one of those elite teams in a playoff atmosphere, in a bowl game atmosphere. And now when you're facing a situation where you're going to have to beat both of them, I mean, let's say theoretically Notre Dame did beat Clemson, you know, last year in the semifinals, uh, to ask them to turn around and do that again within 10 days against an Alabama team that's every bit as talented, if not more so. I mean, that's just asking a lot uh, of really any program, uh, physically, mentally, preparation-wise, you name it. And I just think the playoff era, while it's, it's done its job in terms of declaring a true champion or at least as close to a true champion as we could possibly hope for. Uh, it, it, it's given some of the better teams a little bit more of a margin for error, and it's completely eliminated, I think, the, the kind of Cinderella portion of this, which is akin to basketball, right, where, where a team gets hot at the right time, gets the right matchups, and next thing you know, you look up, they're holding a trophy. I mean, that's just damn near impossible to happen in the playoff era. You know, when I'm reading the story, it really struck me that Dabo Sweeney and Nick Saban are the only coaches at their current schools who have won national titles. That 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 struck me as really bizarre and how stacked the deck is against everybody else. Um, maybe that's the wrong way to put it, but just like how much of an advantage those guys have over everyone else. The other three active coaches who have won titles, uh, Mac Brown, Les Miles, Jimbo Fisher, obviously Mac Brown and Les Miles a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. But, <laughs> you know, it's like, I mean, you look at it from a Notre Dame perspective, let's just, you know, look at this through the lens of Notre Dame's last national title team. Would they have beaten Miami a second time right, in 88? Right. I don't know. Um, you know, could, but in 93, they certainly would have got another shot at Florida State, um, you know, after losing the Boston College at the end of the year. So it's, I, I think it's, I don't want to say harder than ever. I hate using the word ever at a place like Notre Dame because ever <laughs> is a long, long time. But I think it's harder. It is much harder for Notre Dame to win a national championship now than it it's ever been in the modern era. Um, they don't have the benefit of the doubt that they had maybe in the 60s right. and the 70s. Um, certainly the, the bowl structure has changed so much from the 80s and the 90s. Uh, and then, you know, just the way Clemson and Alabama are humming right now, it's I mean, it's not, and it's not just a Notre Dame problem. It's an everyone problem. I, you know, I think the way you described it is Notre Dame sort of in the, the best of the rest. I would, I sort of look at there's, there's obviously Alabama and Clemson are one tier, but then I, pr I probably would go Ohio State, Georgia in their own like second tier. Yeah, I throw Alabama in there too, just through. Oh yeah, good, that's a good point. Yeah. And then I put, but I would definitely put Notre Dame at the top of that next group. You know, whether that's Michigan, Washington, um, Stanford, yeah. Texas coming on, Stanford, uh, schools of that, I, I guess, nature, you know, LSU, I guess, would be sort of in that group too, somewhat. And I, I think that's, that's a fine place to be. I, I'm just fascinated to see you. I was talking to Ari Wasserman about this in Chicago at our athletic summit, just about. He was asking me, do you think Notre Dame is going to get to the point where if they don't make the playoff, people are sort of view the season as a failure? And I'm, I'm sitting there thinking, like, I don't know how many times Notre Dame would have to make the playoff for people to get sick of just making the playoff or look at not making the playoff as a huge epic disaster. But I, I mean, you, you're around the program a lot, too. I just don't think Notre Dame is there. I, I think they sort of look at contending for the playoff in November where you're on the screen on ESPN on their playoff ranking show, if that happens, it's it's 
by and large, a successful season. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I don't think people will ever – if they do make it this year, next year, and they keep losing the semifinals, I mean, Oklahoma is a good kind of comparison for that, right? They've won four straight Big 12 titles. They've made three of the first five playoffs, and they haven't won a game in any of them. And I would argue that 2017 team was as good as any in the country, and they'd miss a golden opportunity to potentially win it all. But I, I don't uh, I don't sense any apathy or, or – or, over-the-top frustration from Oklahoma fans' standpoint. That said, they do have those four straight Big 12 titles to fall back on and brag about it. Mm-hmm. Th- that's not nothing, and I, I don't mean to open a whole other can of worms here saying Notre Dame needs to do this, this, and this, but uh, when you talk about that championship or bust mentality, when you only give statues to guys who won championships, I mean, there's an unspoken or, you know, most cases, spoken standard there that is just incredibly difficult to reach right now. And the most fascinating part of this story to me, you know, we had Dabo Sweeney and Manny Diaz and Chip Kelly and all these other uh, head coaches at Blue Blood programs, but Chris Hurley, the Notre Dame fan who who had graduated, I think, in 1991. I mean, he got to see what a national championship was like up close as a student in 1988. Uh, He's still as devoted a fan as there is. Um, but he's, he said, I, I got this pit in my stomach before the Clemson games saying to myself, let's just not lose this by more than 10. And I think that's the golden goose right now for Notre Dame is get to the playoff, enjoy the celebration of the program, enjoy all the media attention for about a month or so. Uh, but it's going to be incredibly difficult for modern day Notre Dame, at least as long as Davo Swinney and Nick Saban are running operations the way they are right now to get to the place that they thought probably thought it was a birthright 30, 40 years ago. Uh, but that's just not realistic. I'm not saying it, it can't happen, but it, it's the odds are definitely stacked against them. Yeah, that, and I, I think Notre Dame would sort of look at that as like, okay, they went down to Clemson in 2015 and almost won. Uh, right. You know, Florida State in 2014 almost won. Georgia here in 2017 almost won. So it's not, I, it's not like they are always getting – Take it to the woodshed in these games. Um, it's just the Alabama and the Clemson game on the biggest stage that happened. Um, so I, I think if you're Notre Dame and you're Brian Kelly, you you never come out and say, we're content to just keep knocking on the door. But I, I just don't even know what else they can do. Um, I, I think one of the things that works in their favor right now is, to for my money, in 18 years covering Notre Dame, this is probably the brightest, youngest, most energetic coaching staff right. that, that I've covered. Certainly, uh, the one that I've, I feel like I've sort of developed the best relationships with. Maybe that's uh, you know we're you and I are in similar stages of life where we have a young kid or young kids. Uh, Both hairless, yes, the, <laughs> yes, hairless. A lot of the coaches. That's why we get along with Park Lee so well. He's young yeah, kids no, and he's bald. Um, but I do think the staff is just they're hungrier and brighter than I think maybe they've been in the past. Um, there's not there's not a retread element to it at, any, at either of the coordinator positions. And I know you are sort of pursuing something with Clark Lee down the road. I'm pursuing something with Chip Long down the road where we get to go a little bit behind the scenes. But I mean, I think you have more of a global perspective on this staff because you're around other staffs and you can see what works and what doesn't. I'm just here in South Bend, so I can tell you when they're dysfunctional in South Bend. But I'm not sure I could pick out the markers of great staffs elsewhere. Like, so how, how does the, the, the Chip Long-Clarkley dynamic strike you as somebody who's around more college football programs than one? I, I think it's one of the best coordinator duo, duos in the country. I really do. And the way they came together, I mean, like you said, both 30-somethings, uh, both had 
pretty much zero tie to Brian Kelly or Notre Dame whatsoever, as far as I know, when they got hired. And let's face it, Brian Kelly had no choice but to kind of branch out after that tumultuous 2016 season. But uh, they are two young guys, two guys who I have no doubt will be running their own programs, probably at a Power 5 level in the not-too-distant future. And, uh, you know, we could both speak to this and could not be more different from a personality standpoint. I mean, just could not be more different. Yeah, I mean, there's a story that I want to write at some point this season where the headline is why Chip Long yells and why Clark Lee doesn't. Uh, you know, <laughs> you, you spend time around these guys. It's so fascinating to me because you, you think of an organization, the CEO is Brian Kelly, and then he has two VPs. They're Clark Lee and Chip Long. If they're in one organization with one culture and sort of one outlook, you would think they'd be very similar and they're very different. Um, you go out to practice, you hear a lot of four letters from Chip Long and nothing from Clark Lee. Uh, when they talk about relating to their players and getting their points across, Chip Long is more of a, a movie quotes guy. If you spend time with them, you he'll, Tombstone will come up, Days of Thunder will come up. Uh, you know, we'll, We talked about Caddyshack, I think, the last time I spent some time with them. You know, Clark Lee is much more Malcolm Gladwell, and uh, we talked about media manipulation. He's very interested in sort of how the media works and doesn't work. It, there's just, they're so different. Um, and it, it's, it's just, their wives are good friends. I think that they're, they're professional friends, but I don't, I don't think they spend a whole lot of time together outside of football. Um, it just, I don't know, it, it, it's an interesting testament to their, you can have different voices and different perspectives within one organization. They, not everyone has to sort of, speak from the same book of cliches and quotes. Yeah, I mean, I think part of that, too, starts at the top. I mean, look, Brian Kelly had a rep through the first 20-something years of his head coaching career of, of just being a, a micromanager when it came to the offensive side of the ball, and he really has taken a step back. I don't know if I want to get into the whole Brian Kelly 2.0 change in different man narrative that Notre Dame sold so much at the beginning of the 2017 season. But I, I yeah, you should talk to former players about that. They're like, yeah, I don't know, maybe maybe more like Brian Kelly 1.5. We, we could bring in our, our old colleague, Lakin Littman, too, for another uh, chat about that, I'm sure, as well. But um, I do think he genuinely gives Chip Long and Carkley autonomy to run their units the way they see fit. Yes. And uh, that has obviously reaped benefits. They're 22-4 and four over the last two seasons. I mean, especially at Notre Dame anywhere but especially in our name i mean to coach yourself off the hot seat takes almost a miraculous body of work and he not only did that going from four and eight in 2016 they went ahead and posted their first back-to-back double-digit win seasons in 24 years so i think it takes a very even keeled level-headed ceo to properly manage a program or an organization uh with so many divergent interests as notre dame does and to go outside his coaching tree and hire two up-and-comers and basically hand over the car keys to them and let them run ship the way they want to uh, says a lot about him. But, again, these guys are just – I talk to – I try very hard to see and spend time with both of them every time I'm on campus. And every time I'm with Chip, it is football, football, football. And every time I'm with Clark, I don't think we say a word about football. And I don't know if there's a better way to sum up the differences in personalities between the two than that. I, yeah, I've had the same experience. You know, I, I got together with Clark a little bit over the summer and, uh, you know, we must have been together for, you know, 90 minutes or so. And I think we spent 20 minutes on football, um, with, 
with Chip, every time you get together with him, it is, it, you're like you said, it's football, football, football. Um, and, you know, maybe that's, I think your explanation is probably the best one. The reason it works is the head coach uh, and the head coach being hands off in a good way. I think when people say hands off, they think that's a negative um, that you're sort of just like letting the program run itself. I think for Brian Kelly is he's, I think if you gave Brian Kelly sort of a, a true serum, he would look at Chip Long and be like, damn it. That's just, I, I want to be Chip Long. Like I want to be reincarnated <laughs> and come back as Chip Long where I can, I can get, say what he says and coach the way he coaches, uh, you know, golf a little bit better, lower my handicap and enjoy <laughs> playing craps. Like that, that would be Brian Kelly's lifestyle where Clark Lee, I think is, uh, I've talked to, you know, our, Adam Rittenberg at ESPN, one of our colleagues, and Adam and I were joking, like, if Clark Lee lived in my neighborhood, I would, and I didn't have anything to do with Notre Dame, and he didn't have anything to do with Notre Dame, we would be friends. I, right. You know, we, I think he's just sort of one of those guys that's very easy to get along with. Um, you know, it's it's the difference between Bud Light and IPA. Like, they're both <laughs> fine, but, uh, you know, Chip Long is definitely uh, the Bud Light, and Clark Lee is definitely the IPA. I think it, and it, it works really well for Notre Dame. Um, and you know, I, I, I don't think they work without each other, too. I, I think if there were two of either of their personalities, I'm not sure that would work in the room. I, I think, especially in Chip Long's case, he's a, a necessary evil, for lack of a better term, when you look at the way that offense runs, that program runs, and, and what they needed after going so stale after the 2016 season. I just think uh, one of them don't work without the other. Yeah, and I think that I, I agree with what you're saying. I don't think you could have two uh, two Chip Longs or two Clark Lees because um, I, I think you need sort of that guy to light a fire under players' asses, and that's Chip Long. I mean, he when he, you're at practice, he demands perfection. That is that is hard for the players to deal with sometimes. Um, it takes a while for them to sort of be able to translate what he's saying, like get the message out of um, the tone, I guess would probably be a good way to say it. Right. And then with Clark, I think it's the the teaching aspect of it. I think and that's I think why people around Notre Dame are bullish on their linebacker situation more than people are outside the program is because what's the best part about Clark Lee? It's not schematics and X's and O's. I think that's the best part of Chip Long, but I think the best part of Clark Lee is the teaching and the communication. And what does Notre Dame need? And it's in the middle of its defense more than anything right now with down Tavon Coney, down Drew Tranquil with a couple new inside linebackers. They need a teacher and a communicator. And I think that's that this team is really set up to take advantage of their coordinators because they you have a, a quarterback who can handle some sophisticated X's and O's. That's you know, and Chip Long delivers it. And you need linebackers who really need communication and teaching, and Clark Lee can deliver that. Right. And you know, I talked to someone when I was there last week. And I was asking about the linebackers like everyone else. And like, look, we're young. We are talented. But I'll say this, you know, with Clark Lee teaching those guys, it's like having a fourth man out there. And so we're not going to worry about it because we're going to figure this thing out. And I think that that speaks to kind of the philosophical approach of Clark Lee and just kind of the comfortability I think those players have being in a room with him every day. Yeah. Well, let's spin this forward to Louisville because one, you spent some good time around Scott Satterfield this offseason, Louisville's first year head coach, came over from Appalachian State. Um, he's sort of the guy who's not Jeff Brom, which is right. a tough thing for him <laughs> to deal with, I think. But, you know, the connection Notre Dame is there. Jeff Brom and Chip Long are incredibly close. Chip Long spent some time with Jeff Brom this offseason. They both worked at Louisville under Bobby Petrino. 
who came up to Notre Dame this summer, spent some time with Chip Long as well. Not talking about Louisville and their personnel, but more helping Notre Dame get an edge maybe for Georgia down the road. So that's a that's a story we can talk about on a future podcast. But I, you know, reading your story with Satterfield, he seemed very blue collar to me. Um, seemed kind of kind of normal, um, which is difficult for <laughs> I think a Power Five head coach to be. So I mean, what what was sort of your big takeaway? Spending some time around him and just sort of the rebuilding job that actually is in front of him. I would say blue collar normal are, are very apt descriptions. I mean, when you look at him as the kind of local walk on who made good, became a scholarship quarterback at Appalachian State, great quarterback, coach there, helped move them up from the FCS FBS level, and very very normal, which. Um, in most cases in college football, might rub people the wrong way. In this case, considering who he is succeeding, or in this case replacing, uh, it is a breath of fresh air to everyone in the Derby City. I mean, uh, I, I'd been around that program a lot when Bobby Petrita was there. I've been around it a little bit since he left with Scott Satterfield there now, and it is night and day. I mean, uh, that building just has so many better vibes. The players say they didn't even know where the last coaching staff's offices were upstairs because that's how much of a disconnect and fear there was. And with Satterfield and his guys, I mean, it's come on in, you know, have a slice of pizza, watch film. You know, what, what do you want to talk about? Uh, they kept driving the point home, and Bruce Feldman, our colleague, was there a little bit before me as well, and they said the same to him. Uh, you don't need to curse and be rah-rah and, and denigrating to get the most out of 18 to 22 year old kids. And look, part of that is being exaggerated because they're dealing with a group of, of, let's face it, scarred puppy dogs from a staff that pretty much threw in the towel at the end of last season and went from being on the brink of a playoff and having a Heisman winner in 2016 to going two and 10 again, everyone fired last season. Uh, it, it is night and day. Now you said Scott Satterfield's not Jeff Brom, and that is certainly a, a letdown when you look at it from a fan base standpoint, but when you look at the depths of this rebuild and everything that's going on at this roster, I mean, they had six scholarship offensive linemen this spring that they were practicing with. Uh, I think Jeez. taking a big picture, slow approach, uh, <clears throat> being composed and maintained publicly the way Scott Satterfield is, is the right way to do. Because if you brought Jeff Brom or a bigger name in here, uh, people would be expecting to compete for an ACC title immediately. And, and that is just so far off base from what the reality of Louisville football is right now. Yeah, I guess there's no no point in advertising yourself as a savior of something that needs to be torn down and rebuilt. I mean, there's nothing there's nothing to save. It's just like a start over there. And six offensive linemen on scholarship is not not the matchup you want no. against Notre Dame <laughs> with Julian O'Quarr and Khalid Kareem. Not That's, quite, not quite. So, no. I mean, when you were when you were down there, did you get a sense like this is this is a four and eight team? This is a six and six team? This this team might have to go two and ten again? Like what? Like, what was the vibe around that? I, I think four and eight will get you a statue. I mean, I think it's that okay. bad from a talent standpoint. Um, again, I, I, I think long-term from a pro programmatic standpoint, this is a really good hire and it's going to work out for Louisville, but uh, there's just not a whole lot there right now, just in terms of the numbers. Um, they do have some skilled players. And again, this is a program that was winning nine games a year as recently as two or three years ago. So it's not like they've always been this bad. That you know, There are people in that building who – have tasted some levels of success. Uh, but, you know, to go up against I, – I can't think of a worse matchup than to go up against a, a team like Notre Dame that, if nothing else, should be pretty set on the offensive line and is really, really good at defensive end. I have some questions interiorly on the defensive line. But uh, 
it's going to be very, very tough to block considering the youth and the inexperience that's on Louisville's offensive line. I just think, uh, you know, we don't want to spend too much time talking about this game. And I know in your mailbag, you talked about how openers have been harbingers for good or bad things to come for Brian Kelly. Uh, unless they somehow lose this one or, or need overtime to win it, I, I don't know if we're going to be able to learn a whole lot about Notre Dame from this game because uh, that's just kind of the state of Louisville right now. Yeah, it's a, it did sort of a quick review of Notre Dame under Brian Kelly when they're two touchdown favorites against Power 5 teams. Uh, straight up, they're 21-2. and two. The two losses, Northwestern in 2014 and then Duke in 2016. I think this, this Notre, Notre Dame team does not have any of the markers of that, of tw- November 2014 Notre Dame or all of 2016 Notre Dame. Uh, so I would expect a... Uh, Interestingly, they're only six and seventeen straight or uh, against the spread when they're two touchdown favorites against Power Five teams. So that might be a little bit interesting, but just the the matchups seem very poor. And we can talk about that a lot more on Thursday with our uh, next edition of the Shamrock, because we'll be uh, with you all season, twice a week. Uh, usually after the games. Hopefully, we'll be recording on Sunday to get that out. We'll have guests. Um, I know that Matt and I have a favorite former walk-on linebacker that would be great for the show, although we're trying to keep this around a half hour, so he, Joe Schmidt <laughs> might be a difficult guest in that way. But, I thought um, you were talking about Brian Yeah, Kelly. we'd like to have some guests make this a little different. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if I'll be able to get Brian Kelly booked for the show. Fair enough, fair enough. <laughs> yeah. we'll, we'll get John so, Hayes I mean, on the case. Exactly. Exactly. We all know but, how much uh, Brian Kelly and Notre Dame love fine bombs. So I'm sure John will be able to, to wrap that one up. <laughs> yeah, our trusty producer, John. Uh, but yeah, we'll get into some X and O's, but mostly this podcast is going to be trying to go beyond that. We think you'll enjoy that perspective. It's a little different from what's out there elsewhere in the Notre Dame podcast world. So thanks for listening to the debut edition of The Shamrock. You can follow me on Twitter at Pete Sampson underscore or Matt at Matt underscore Fortuna, and of course, the Athletics College Football handle, at The Athletic CFB. We'll, I think, have some pretty interesting stuff coming out of the Louisville weekend as well in terms of content. We can talk about that a little bit more on Thursday when we're back for our second edition of the Shamrock, previewing Notre Dame's opener on Labor Day night. Thanks for listening.